This is from John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 22 through 58. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the bread that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the word of the Lord.
All right, well, let's pray. Jesus, as we encounter your word this morning, uh, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you are incisive in your work, that you will drive the, the thoughts and intentions of our heart um, directly to the foot of the cross. I pray that we will be, be forced to look deep into our own lives, into a mirror of the gospel, and, uh, and ultimately submit to you. We praise your name. Amen. So in our passage this morning, we find a hungry crowd listening to the words of God, much like Sunday morning. And this impasse, this intersection of the belly and the bringing of God's word, uh, it's, it's, no, it's no small thing. And really, if we wanted to just stay on this single point, barbecue, Sunday morning barbecue, Right now, if I just say the word barbecue, and you still have two hours till lunch, for the remainder of this message, you will hopefully be contemplating your physical needs, and you're going to have to weigh them against your spiritual needs. And this is the salient point of the passage, I believe, that when we, we enter into the world, we are both spirit and we are body. And, and how we handle our spiritual needs, juxtaposed against and combined with our, our physical needs, this will place us either far removed from Christ, um, or it, it, it determines how we approach him. So this question throughout Christendom, throughout the world, uh, this, is, this is constantly debated. So how do we as spiritual beings interact with our physical, with this physical world? Um, the ascetics are a group of people who historically have said the things of this world are just a distraction and that our spiritual lives need to be raised up and so we want to push down all earthly desire, even to the point of like self-flogging and um, insane acts of, of self-abnegation to where they, they are just trying so desperately to peel away the things of this world and they can look through that distraction to find the, 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 uh, the God beyond. So that's one option. You got your aesthetics. Then you also have the idea that, that it's okay for you to enjoy the things of the world, but there should be a firm wall of separation between the church and those things. And so God is okay with, he's created a world for you to enjoy, but as you are enjoying those things, when it comes to that time to actually contemplate God, you should contemplate God. And that these two things are in different categories. Um, and then, of course, there's a third option where these two things are in no way connected at all. This is more likely how our culture approaches it, that we, we have divorced the spirit and the body completely. Or perhaps even with that divorcing, those two become one thing of nothingness. In Japan, here's what I mean. In Japan, uh, there is a tradition in Osaka, Japan, where... It's, it's a gastro center of the world. People all around the world will travel, and these foodies will, will descend on Osaka, and they, they want to taste the thousand delicacies that can be found only in Osaka, Japan. And the people there take food very, very seriously, to the point where it becomes almost combined with a spiritual experience. And they have a tradition called eating oneself unto ruin. And what they'll do is they don't, they don't bar hop, they restaurant hop. And they spend the entire night eating and eating and eating and eating and eating until they vomit. And then they eat and they eat and they eat until they 
purge, and then so on and so forth throughout the entire night until by the next morning they've so fully exhausted themselves at just trying to, to take hold of some satisfaction that they are, they are in ruins. Now, we look at that and we're like, that's crazy, man. But we do the same thing. This, this is a, a tricky business, looking at the spirit and the body, satisfaction and the soul, and how these two things intersect. Pleasure and righteousness, the worldly and the spiritual. It's tough. I love how Father Capon approaches this subject. He says, why do we marry? Why take friends and lovers? Why give ourselves to music, to painting, chemistry, or cooking? Out of simple delight in the resident goodness of creation? Of course. But out of more than that, too, half of Earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the glimpsed city it longs to become. Longing. Longing. Life can be so beautifully summed up with that word. It's a longing for satisfaction and peace. It's a longing to chase down some pure moment of blissful wholeness. The problem is, is that the food that we eat, as the Japanese discovered, it digests. It goes away. And we wake after a night of joyous celebration to the necessities of survival. And all we have is the dull remembrance of that once satisfying thing that we experienced so long ago. Apply this to anything in your life. We can chase something, but eventually that thing once gained, it either disappoints or it fades. Well, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that in any way the good things of the world are not, in fact, very good. I'm just echoing Capon. The world is truly delightful. It's good to the brim, but it's achingly lacking. There's an incompleteness that cannot satisfy our souls. Now, this is the topic of Jesus' discourse. He is looking at a hungry crowd, and this is the very same crowd that he's seen before. So they've come back to him. So let's go through the, the order of events, and you're going to see how Jesus is incisively seeing the crowd for who they are, what their true longing is. Not a day before, Jesus feeds the 5,000. When we covered this passage, it was pointed out that 5,000 is, is not a number that, that you, should, you should take us with those 5,000 people. They took a census. Rather, they counted the men, and they didn't count the women, and they didn't count the children. And so that means that you could triple this number very, very easily. Conservatively, you could put this number at 15,000 or above. So 15 plus thousand have come to Jesus, and, and he's preached all day long. So I don't want to write this off. Like he, is, he has preached and taught for an extended period of time. And then the people were confronted with this impasse, this intersection of their physical need and their desire to hear about their spiritual needs. And so Jesus, his apostles discerned this, no doubt, because they were thinking barbecue. And they look to, the, to their teacher and they say, everybody's hungry. We need to feed them in order to be able to, to return to your feet and receive spiritually. And Jesus does not draw a distinction between those two things. He, in fact, says, you're right, they are hungry, so feed them. Feed them in this moment. Feed them right now. Don't make them leave. Feed them. And there's, there's this beautiful moment of faith. There's this beautiful moment of trust in which Andrew says, well, actually, there's this little boy. He has a small lunch. Would this be enough for you, Master? And this gesture of faith is, is directly precipitated by a physical need. And of course, then Jesus, honoring that faith, responding to that faithful gesture, he breaks this up. He breaks the bread. 
and he, he distributes the bread. He distributes the, the, the fish. And when they take it all back up, there's 12 baskets full. There's no accident to that. There's a picture of something being built. Now, after this, Jesus is weary. The apostles are weary. In weariness, he just sends his apostles away. And he says, go across the lake. I need to have a moment of refreshing. And so he dismisses the crowd, Matthew says, and, and John, John says he actually goes up onto the mountain for, for prayer, for respite. So he's already met the physical needs of the people, but then he himself, oh, this is such a beautiful intersection right here. You see that the God of the universe grows weary. The God of creation enters into creation and suffers the pangs of being in creation. He's tired. He's, he's, he's weary. He's been teaching for hours. He's no doubt desperate for some alone time. And so up onto the mountain he goes. Now up onto the mountain, he stays. And the apostles, they, they are sent ahead. And so he, he leaves them in the lurch, so to speak. He doesn't give them any instructions. He just says, go across the lake. And then he'll come down at his own bidding. So the apostles have another faith moment. Will we obey or will we stay with what we can see? Will we wait to have Jesus bodily with us or can we trust him? And so they choose to trust and they get into the boats and they begin to, these experienced fishermen begin to row across a very um, stormy lake. Now the Sea of Galilee we've discussed is, is positioned in such a way that it is constantly subject to the changing uh, weather. And, and so you'll have these mountains, the air rush down and stir up the lake. Well, these men are out on the sea, and it says they've rowed three, four miles. And the water is very real. I, I think that we can't separate that. The frigidness of these waves is very real. The threat of the, of the fathoms below them is very real. And they begin to despair, and they begin to grow weary. And their physical existence is very much at risk. And then in this moment, the creator of the universe returns to them. And he's walking across creation. And he's going through the waves. Now, this fascinates me because growing up, I always pictured where Jesus walks, there's no waves. As he crosses creation, it's like this, this smooth path. But I don't know about that. I think that when Jesus enters into creation, he enters in. Now, he has mastery over the waves. We'll see that he stills the waters here in a moment. But these men who are desperately encapsulated in darkness, who are shrouded with the fury of the storm, they see a man or a being or a, they, they think he's a ghost, some spectral being, walking amongst the, the melee. I would think that this is, this would be a God, this would be a man who is plowing through the waves. He's very much in this with them. And they see him and apparently something about his appearance just throws them off. They don't know what to do with this, this mad man coming toward them across the waves. Now, if you go back to Matthew, Matthew actually records uh, more detail. And, he, and there's this beautiful moment of, of Peter uh, being asked to step out of the boat. But in this moment here in John, he simply says his name. He goes, it is I. And if you look at it, it's I am. He, he says, I am Jesus. And in that moment, they have to make a choice. Do we let Jesus into our stormy, frantic moment? There's a trust moment. So are you seeing this intersection? The physical nastiness of the world, the very real threat of darkness and death leads to a moment where God wants them to choose him. And so they do. 
and they allow him in the boat. And then in that moment, only once the faith step has been taken, then the waters are stilled. So they get across the lake. Now, meanwhile, the crowd, which is really the subject of our, of our talk, the, the, the crowd is not fully dissipated. In fact, it's grown. People have heard about this, this man, this, this Messiah maybe, this prophet, this, this, this crazy person did this crazy thing and he fed everyone. And so all the boats, it says, begin to descend on that one small patch of earth and they're looking for this, this, this being, this person. And he's not there. And so they get back in their boats and they begin to seek him and they're seeking and seeking and they find him across the lake. But they remember that there was only one boat and that the apostles had left before the Messiah. And so they begin to put the dots together and they recognize that there's something crazy going on. There's something taking place that they cannot possibly ascertain. And so they come to him with a need. It's a mysterious need of their own minds. Who are you, Jesus? What are, you, what are you doing here? Are you feeding us? Are you our king? Are you a prophet to give a word? What are you? And so the crowd finds him and they begin to question him about the crazy things he's done. But Jesus does not answer. This is so Jesus. He does not answer. Instead, he directs the conversation into a similar but completely different place. He says, you have come here not seeking me. You've come here because your bellies, which were empty, they were filled, but now they're empty again. And that food that I gave you, it was so satisfying to you, and you've come to me chasing that feeling. Um, and so this is our topic today. Jesus is really wanting to explore what true longing looks like, what true satisfaction looks like. And he inbred, just like the water and the waves and the darkness, these are not accidental imageries. Uh, Jesus purposely waits until evening and then sends his apostles out. He could have said, hang out at the base of the mountain until it's nice and, and daylight and you've got good conditions, but he sends them out in the evening. This is intentional. And Jesus, similarly, is not just randomly drawing images. Bread is a powerful, powerful symbol throughout all of Scripture. And so they are asking for one type of bread, and he offers something that's wholly different, wholly unique. So today I just want to answer three questions. What is this bread from heaven? Where is it? And finally, how do we receive it? Jesus says, you wanted bread, let me give you something better. Let me give you bread from heaven. And if you eat this bread, it will never run dry. You will always be satisfied. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, bread from heaven, you consume it, and you will not be left hungry ever again. Interestingly, when a Greek uses the word for life, he could intend it one of two ways. Uh, she might be saying, you are alive, meaning you possess life or bios. It's where we get the word biology, of course. It simply conveys existence, so bios. It's not hard to see how our culture often approaches life with this sort of definition. There's nothing outside of this this life that we have. We've reduced everything down to this moment in time in which we live. And so what's the goal then if we view our life primarily as bios, as something that, that is, is, is a matter of existence? Well, you need to protect that existence. And so there is this fascination with prolonging our existence. Our generation is really afraid of sacrificing their existence. The idea of putting yourself at risk is, is more, it's more of a risk than ever before. Because if this is all there is, then, then you don't want to lose that. 
Um, this, of course, uh, finds its way throughout all of our society. If you look at fantasy literature, like sci-fi and fantasy literature, you find this is a very popular theme. Somebody, by their own cleverness, maybe drinking a special potion or finding a, an old artifact, but somehow through their own devising, their own intellect, their own luck, they find a way to exist eternally. And as they're existing eternally, the years pass by and the eons move on, their loved ones die, and this simple existence becomes very hollow. And this existence, this bios, is suddenly a burden to them. They don't, they don't, the lie is put to what they believed. It is not simply enough to exist. And so they begin to seek purpose. They begin to want to, to reclaim some meaning for their life, some validity. And, and it, it takes all manner of forms, like world domination or finding the love that will truly satisfy, writing the, 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 the most beautiful um, orchestral piece, whatever it might be. And always they realize if we don't fill our existence with something, then this gift of eternality is meaningless. And this finds its way all throughout literature in the Western world. You have this idea of YOLO, you only live once. And so you end up with poets like Mary Oliver saying, asking us, what is it that you will do with your one wild and precious life? You end up with Dylan Thomas imploring us to not go gentle into that good night, to rage, rage against the dying of the light. You have Thoreau declaring that he would suck out the marrow of life and put to rout all that was not life so that at the end of his life, he might not find that he had not truly lived. This is what Jesus is addressing to the crowd. He is offering something more than bios. He's offering something more than, than some sort of satisfaction that can be gained through earthly things. He's wanting to offer them the second meaning of the word. When he uses the word for life, he doesn't use bios. He uses zoe. Zoe. And a zoe is, at its heart, thriving. It's not just existing, it's thriving. It's radical life. It's a life that truly satisfies. And as you might expect, upon hearing this usage of the word and upon this, this promise of something that's eternal, that will never run dry, the crowd responds with gusto and they, they want it. Give us this bread. But when they say, give us this bread, that has the idea of something that can be reached out taken, grasped, and held to themselves. They're still using in their mind bios, and Jesus is offering Zoe. So the question then becomes, if there is such a thing as radical life, fulfilling life, satisfaction in this life, where is it? This answer would be shocking and hard to grasp. If you look in verse 35, if, if you want the bread... Jesus says, that yields you everlasting life, he says, you must consume me. He says, I am the bread of life. And in verse 41, he says, I am the bread that was sent down from heaven. This is a tough one. This is a tough one for the, the people who first heard this to receive. And historically, this is the, the stumbling point for, for many people when they look to Christianity. The first real accusation against uh, Christians was, was, was that they were a bunch of cannibals, that they, they gathered together in these weird sacred rites. They were often gathering in catacombs and places that were dark. And then they would have these, these sordid moments of where they feasted upon their master. Um, of course, we know this to be the Eucharist. We, we, we see this as the Lord's Supper. Um, but it, it's taken and it begins right here. Do we consume the bread in order to receive eternal life? This is challenging 
Christianity is neither a Western nor an Eastern religion. You can't truly trace Christianity in its, its essence back to either of these two branches, these two trees. You see, the Greeks would say, here's how you found Zoe. Here's how you find true satisfaction in life, uh, truth and beauty. It's all in the realm of ideals and ideas. If, for the Greeks, it was think your way into satisfaction. This is how Plato taught it. The way in which you really find life is through escaping the world, through contemplation. What you want is intellect. What you want is to be a contemplative. What you want is to be a philosopher. They're the ones who can find life because life is an eternal realm of ideas. Of, and I think Casey's actually talked about this, that, there is, that this, this creates our modern picture of, of heaven, where you're not earthy. Your hands are not in the mud. You are up on a cloud with, with very, very vague form. Um, describing heaven for most people is literally as vague as that. It's, it's we will exist and we will exist beyond this world. I mean, even this morning, we're reading this song and I'm not, I'm not smashing on this song in any way. It's a beautiful song. But, but if you go behind the words, you're gonna see that there is this same kind of longing. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Now what the song is saying, obviously, is I'm, I'm abusing it a little bit, because what the song is saying is we're longing for eternity, but how we describe that eternity is often vague. It's a picture of I'll leave this place fraught with difficulty, this physical place, and I will go to a world where there is none of this. I just wanna escape, I wanna leave. Now Eastern religions, they approach it in that way. They actually just go full into the non-physicalness of the world. They say Eastern, equals right brain. Life is a kind of force. Life is not this high realm of ideas. It's a kind of force that you must tap into. You need to get into a God consciousness. You have to divorce yourself from this world and you, you, you don't learn through the intellect, you, you ascertain through the spirit. And so you try to reach some sort of Zen connection with the, the God force around us. Tim Keller puts it beautifully. He says, Jesus He's, and his point is, here's why this doesn't work. Here's why Christianity is not Western. Here's why Christianity is not Eastern. Why you don't ascertain eternal life through intellect alone, and you don't ascertain life only through the feeling out of the Spirit. It's because Jesus is always saying, let the little children come to me. And Jesus is always saying that you have to be a little child in order to be saved. And a child cannot be a philosopher, and a child cannot be a mystic, but a child can meet a person. A child can welcome a friend, and a child can submit to a king. First and foremost, Jesus is saying you cannot attain life, eternal life that you seek through the mind, and you cannot attain this life through spiritual contemplation. You must enter through a person. It's a personal religion. It falls directly onto a single physical life, Jesus. Can you seek the spiritual kingdom of God through the intellect? Yes, absolutely. Can you feel for the kingdom with spiritual contemplation? Certainly. But Jesus is saying the only way that you will enter the kingdom is through him. So I'm not saying that the Western world, the idea of an intellectual faith, I mean, we are Presbyterian. Um, I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. I'm also not saying that the, that the poets are wrong. The answer is not in the realm of the philosopher or in the realm of the poet, it's in the presence of Jesus. That's where we enter into the kingdom. It's through a person. So I'll speak um, very personally here. Whenever I picture Jesus as a philosopher, 
I find very little use in him. But whenever he describes here, well, and here's why, because when he says, if, if Jesus was simply a radical teacher, then his radical teachings at some point would be radically opposed to me because he would at some point be condemning me. His ideals that he would set, I would not be able to follow. We know this because all the philosophers ran into this problem. If you look at the Stoics, just as a great example, the Stoics would say, do not let life cause a reaction within you. You be the rock in the storm. But that's not me. I'm an emotional crying guy. Like, that's what I do. And so when the moment that I'm overwhelmed by the world, I've just failed. And I can't follow that philosopher. And the things that Jesus says, they don't, they're, they're no joke. And to follow and to, to, to live out his ideals, if he was just a philosopher, then um, he's of very little use to me personally. But he says, furthermore, that he is a broken piece of bread. He goes, this body, my body is bread. You need to consume me. But first of all, to, in order to be consumed, I must be broken. Now, a broken Jesus a broken Jesus who enters into our world, who does not lose the philosopher. Plato always talks about in, in his Republic, he has this moment where he says, what you need is a philosopher and a king. You need, if, if you really want to find the, the, the true authority for this world that could lead us out of the darkness and give us true justice, he says it lies at the feet of someone who is perfectly wise and perfectly good, and this king should rule us. And of course, Jesus is saying, that's me. But he's a king who walks amongst us. He's a king who comes and is broken for us. And as such, he is perfectly relatable to us. And he's attainable. So a broken Jesus, I can receive. Because he has heartache. He has difficulty. Just before service, I, I always find myself drawn out any small still moment I can find, I just want to go find those places and try to ascertain some sort of peace to reach out and take it for myself. But you know what happens? Cars pull into the driveway and they ruin it. Or that coffee moment in the morning is, is interrupted by screaming kids. Or that food that was baking so beautifully in the oven suddenly is no longer beautiful. It's burnt. There's all of this attempt to seize peace. And we always mess it up. And so Jesus is, in the, our passage, he's interacting with our world, and he's being worn down by it. And he's giving himself for us. So much so that he has to retreat. He has to go up onto a mountain, and he has to find peace for himself. But then guess what? He's got to come right back down because the apostles are clamoring, and the crowd is searching. This Jesus, I understand. Um, so looking at the last question, how do we receive this uh, spiritual fruit or uh, eternal life? Notice where it says that the disciples asked in verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus turns around and says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's a very clear statement. It's pretty tough to mess that up. If you want to receive the bread of heaven, you have to see that you cannot work to receive it. The one work that will earn the bread of heaven is to see that you can't do any work to earn the bread of heaven. This is, this is so hard because we want to know what to do. Jesus, all right, give me this bread. What do I need to do? How do I get it? And his answer is, is mind-twisting. 
verse 50, 53 through 59, you'll see that Jesus, he, he says on first, he says, you, you have to believe, you cannot work to receive. But then he goes to verse 53 and he starts using these present tense verbs. Very confusing, Jesus, because he switches and he says, I know you need to do something, but first you have to receive something. And once receiving something, then you have to, you have to let it digest in your life. Bread is this beautiful imagery because it's something that gives us energy. It enlivens our soul. When we eat bread, it has to be broken. And we have to have it in manageable pieces. And we have to chew it. And we have to allow it to settle in our bodies. And then it will give us this burst of life. But then that life will slowly fade away. Jesus is promising two things. He's promising not that we will be separated from our physical life. He's saying that your spiritual life, it is sure, it is certain you have an eternal satisfaction that can be found in me because of what I've done for you. However, you're right. There is a process of eating me. There is a process of feeding on me. And so he begins to describe it. How do you do it? He says, you feed on him, on me through prayer. Because he talks later on about abiding with him. Later on, Jesus talks about his words being something we're supposed to feed on. There's another place where Jesus says, my, my meat and my drink is to do the will of the Father. That's obedience. So if you put all of these together, um, you'll see that to continually feed on Jesus means that we are interacting with him through prayer, through the word, and through obedience. Through the prayer, through the word, through obedience. First Thessalonians talks about pray without ceasing. And I immediately, as a child, took that very literally, and I thought, if I'm not praying, then I'm failing. And so I wore the WWJD bracelet, and I like, man, I, it was like, I got to pray. I got to pray. I got to pray. We, we have a, a tendency to turn the good, to turn the meal of Jesus, the process of feeding on him, into something laborious and, and strained. You look at Mary and Martha, they take vastly different approaches to, at, to, to achieving and, and putting their hands on Jesus. One says, let me work my way into it. Let me, let me prepare all of this beautiful meal. It's going to be beautiful, Jesus. Just let me work it up and I will make sure everything's perfect. And Jesus doesn't need our work. He doesn't need us to, to, to go above and beyond to create some beautiful moment for him. He wants us to receive him as the thing that is being celebrated. It would be like having a feast for a wedding banquet and losing sight of the bride and groom. The food is not really why you're there. You're there for the bride and groom. And so we approach Jesus, who is the, the purpose of our meal, of what we're being satisfied by. And we interact and we celebrate him through three very clear ways. We pray. We pray in such a way that our hearts are satisfied. The Holy Spirit is said to give us a connection to God that goes beyond words. And so this prayer is, is an enjoining with the Holy Spirit. Sure, you have to have some words sometimes, but you don't have to always have words. Um, there is a deep pain within many of us that is unutterable. You can't say it. You can't even find voice for it. But God still says you should pray about it. And you should continually pray about it. And in the laying down of your burden in prayer, you are able to lift up the yoke of the Lord, which is light to you. And it can actually restore your soul. Does, does it say restore your, your brokenness? No. Jesus was broken and he still bears the marks on his body in heaven. And so for the idea of God promising to come in and remove all strife from our life, it doesn't line up with, with what Jesus himself bore on our behalf. But he does say that you can go on the mountain in prayer and you can have your hearts lightened. And so we feed through prayer and we feed through obedience. And I, and I was reticent to put this in here 
But I believe we also feed through the sacraments. The sacraments are very much a way of, 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 of connecting with Christ. The reason I, I obviously am, am careful to say that is because when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, eat my body, historically this has been taken very, very literally. And the Eucharist has been raised to a place where you could separate your heart from the experience and you could simply walk into a moment and you could receive the Lord's Supper and that this would be the actual thing that saves you and restores your, your, your life. Uh, but Jesus obviously doesn't want his apostles to get out knives and forks and come at him. He is saying that my body is broken and spiritually you should receive me. And so and whenever Casey comes up, there's a very real thing that happens here. And it's something that has to be wrestled with. Remember, Eastern and Western don't encapsulate our faith. There is something that truly takes place, and it's a mystery. And to ascertain that, we have to be present, and we have to submit to it. We have to be obedient to it. But the bread will not save you. Holy baptism will not fully, in, in by itself, redeem your soul. Um, I am a student minister, and for 15 years, I ministered in a tradition in which it, that was the, the primary belief. You, if you can just take these kids and get them into the water, then this will be the thing that will satisfy their souls. I Man, I got so many kids wet, I would just dunk them and dunk them and dunk them and dunk them. And, and you know, it didn't really work. It didn't work. They were still desperately longing for some satisfaction. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just putting a, a little bit of a pause there through the word, through prayer, and through obedience. And yes, there's power and there's beauty in the Eucharist and in the baptism. So bread must be ingested so that it might be digested and its energy will work through our life. But I want to close simply by pointing back to the original bread from heaven. When the, the apostles receive a person, he says, I've already given you a picture of who I am. There was another deliverer. There was another redeemer who came first, and his name was Moses. And Moses came, and whenever his people were hungry and they were clamoring and they were desperate, I, God gave to them bread from heaven. And there were certain rules surrounding this manna. And, the, and, it, and first and foremost, it was for today. It had to be gathered every single day. Now, hear what I'm saying. Your eternal security is secure. But there is a process of feeding on the Lord day to day in which we must reach down and with our very physical hands gather up the Lord's graces that he's given us. And so we read the word as if we were the Israelites gathering manna every morning. And we offer our prayers just as if we were as desperate and hungry and lost as those Israelites wandering in the desert. And in the gathering daily of these graces to our life, then we're able to better perceive and understand this bread from heaven that eternally satisfies our soul.